0: Let's ask God to help us with his word. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do thank you for your good and true word. Our Father, we pray that today we would know its power, its power to turn us to trust our Lord Jesus for life and to equip us to live as your children. Uh, please give us understanding and let this word take root in our hearts and help me to speak it clearly uh, and truthfully. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the verses of Matthew you heard read, the story of the testing of Jesus, uh, sounds both familiar and strange to us, doesn't it? Uh, familiar because as uh, Cammy and Annabelle testified... Uh, We all know what it is to know what we should do and be drawn to do something else, be tempted to take an alternate path. That's been our experience from an early age. And yet strange for none of us, for example, can even imagine going without food for 40 days or expecting angels to save us from our own reckless decisions, let alone going toe-to-toe in a personal encounter with the devil. And as well as being strange and familiar, we also probably sense the importance of what's recorded here, a personal confrontation between Jesus and the devil, though we may not be sure exactly why it's important. Oh, that it is here in the Gospel tells us that Jesus thought important for us to get this glimpse of his eternal internal struggles. But why? Well, it's because... This passage is about far more than Jesus being a model for us of how we deal with temptation. It's about Jesus being qualified by the character of his relationship with God, his Father, to be the saviour of his people, to be our saviour. If Jesus stumbles here, all is lost. And victory here tells us Jesus is the saving son God declares him to be when he is baptised, the son who can bring God's kingdom, who can bring God's light and life to our world. This all starts with God's declaration at Jesus' baptism, 317. A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Just like Jesus' birth, the declaration from heaven, from God, is full of promise. You see, the beloved son recalls Psalm 2, where God declares of the one who will rule the nations, you are my son. And it also recalls Isaiah 42, where God calls his servant, his chosen, in whom his soul delights, his blood. That servant will be a light to the nations and the one who will rescue the Lord's people from judgment, rescue them from the consequences of their sin. The declaration of Jesus as the beloved son promises a work that will restore the world to God, establish his reign over all, bring light to a people in darkness, release to those in bondage, forgiveness for those dying under judgment, a work based on a relationship. You are my son. But is Jesus truly that son? Does he have the relationship with God his Father that means he can accomplish this saving work? What does that relationship look like? This is what the testing in the wilderness reveals. Uh, You see, God has had other sons who failed, whose hearts were not true to God. Uh, The people of Israel were called God's son. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. They were meant to be a holy nation to show to the world how good God's rule was by their own obedience to God, to show how good God's rule was in their lives. But they failed in the wilderness. In the wilderness, they failed to trust and obey. They grumbled, they complained, they put the Lord to the test. They went and worshipped other gods. And before Israel, Adam, entrusted with the rule of creation, with establishing God's rule over his world by living in obedience to God, Adam, called son of God in Luke 3, Adam had failed and brought the world into misery, failed because he did not believe God's word, failed because he chose to follow his own desire. So now will Jesus, declared to be the saving son by God, be in truth that son? Does he have the relationship with God that means he will establish God's good reign over the earth, bring God's promised salvation to a world enslaved to sin and death. This is what is demonstrated in the wilderness, demonstrated before Jesus undertakes his public ministry. Here we will see the foundation of that ministry to come, the heart of that ministry to come in Jesus' relationship with his heavenly Father. And this testing is as significant for the world as the events of the Garden of Eden then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What follows, we're told, comes about by God's express purpose. God, through his spirit, is directing affairs here. And the purpose of Jesus going to the wilderness, that place of Israel's failure, is to be tempted by the devil. Now, the word translated tempted here can also be translated exactly the same word tested. So what's happening here is God is sending Jesus into the wilderness to be tested and the means he will use is the devil's tempting Jesus. You see, testing has as its goal the demonstration of the suitability of something or someone for the task they are to perform. Uh, People used to test bridges by putting heavy loads on them, not to make them break but to demonstrate that they would not break under those loads. Professional groups like doctors, lawyers, accountants test those joining their ranks, not with the purpose of failing their candidates but to demonstrate the adequacy of those who pass the test for their professional role. Having declared Jesus to be his beloved son, God is now testing Jesus, testing him in the integrity of his relationship to his Father, testing him in his commitment to his Father, and he's testing him to demonstrate that Jesus is suitable for the work the Father has given him. But the means God will use is the devil's tempting of Jesus. Tempting is testing with malicious intent, testing with the aim of making someone fail. And that is what the devil, acting true to his character, desires, to make Jesus fail. But the devil, though powerful and cunning, called the prince or ruler of this world, is a creature. And here his malice, as it does in the crucifixion, will only serve God's good purpose. And as we come to look at these temptations, recognise that they are unique. Unique in their intensity, unique in their specific content, temptations only the true son could face. This is a unique testing to demonstrate that Jesus is uniquely that son. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came to him and said, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And you think 40 days and 40 nights. That's a long time Uh, because it has echoes of Israel's 40 years in the wilderness, but its main point is to bring home Jesus' extreme hunger, to allow us to feel the pressure Jesus is under. You see, not many of us will be seriously tempted to believe we could do a spectacular miracle or rule the world. Uh, We might imagine that, but seriously, we wouldn't. Right? But we all know hunger. Hunger, preoccupying, compelling, driving everything else out of our minds. Oh Yes, perhaps some of us fast, you know, practice that diet where we fast two days a week or something like that. But to go more than a day without food, a week, unimaginable. It wouldn't be a question of trying to get me to change stones into bread if I could. It'd actually be a question of trying to stop me and it'd probably be about six hours into the kind of event, right? Every cell of Jesus' body is saying, we are dying. We have to have food. Jesus is being tested in a way that is far more intense than anything you or I have or will ever face. And in this state, the devil comes along and says, if you're the son of God, it's actually better since you are the son of God. The question is not whether Jesus is son. God has just declared him to be son. The question is, what does it mean for Jesus to be son of God? What does Jesus think it means for him to be the beloved son? And the devil's suggesting that being son is about taking initiative to use your powers to save your own life by your actions, to save your life by satisfying your hunger, your appetite for life. He's suggesting that being son is about being able to keep yourself alive by your own actions. But Jesus is the true son. He has embraced the purpose of God testing his son Israel in the wilderness. And that purpose is to learn, verse 4, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus quotes here, Deuteronomy 8 3. Uh, Jesus says he is guided in his relationship with the Father by the word of God. And that word teaches him to depend on his Father to sustain and keep. His life. To be son is not to focus on bread, on pursuing the tangible material sources that we have to keep ourselves alive. No, being son is to focus on God's word as the source of life, on living by trusting and obeying his Father. Jesus understands that being son is having a heart that keeps the Father's word and that being directed by the word of God is his life. And so the devil moves on to the second temptation. He takes him to the holy city and sets him on a pinnacle of the temple and says, If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Like the next temptation, this is most likely some kind of visionary experience. And the devil's twig to the role the word of God has in Jesus' life and so he seeks to destroy him through that word. Here, quoting Psalm 91, a psalm that speaks of God's protection of those who take refuge in God. Being son, says the devil, is dictating to God the how and the when of God keeping his promises. You see, the devil's an advocate of, you know, the name it and claim it school, uh, though at least the devil doesn't cloak his corruption in the language of faith. Jesus, the one most entitled to think Psalm 91 speaks of him, exposes and rejects the devil's misuse of scripture by again quoting scripture. Again, Deuteronomy. Here, Deuteronomy six sixteen. It is written... You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The generation of the Israelites that left Egypt had put the Lord to the test, but the true Son does not. To put the Lord to the test is to demand that the Lord should meet your needs in your way when you demand. It's to say that the Lord must prove his commitment to you, his commitment to his people must prove his power and his faithfulness by doing what you want, when you want, in the way you want. And it springs from a lack of trust in God and it reverses the order of the relationship between the Lord and his people. In putting the Lord to the test, the people are saying that they should rule, they should call the shots and the Lord should serve them. But the Lord is King and his people serve him. Testing the Lord's not more acceptable by being cloaked in biblical or religious language. It is like Adam's sin, rebellion that springs from unbelief. But Jesus is the true son. He will serve, not dictate. He will do things God's way, in God's timing, because he trusts his father. So the devil tries again with a temptation only Jesus could feel the full force of. He takes him up to a very high mountain and shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. The son is the one entitled to the rule of the nations. This is his birthright. And he alone is really equipped to see and feel the grandeur of that rule, the treasures of China and India, the wealth of Rome, the achievements of the nations. And here the devil holds all of this before Jesus and says it can be his with no arduous obedience, no suffering. Just says the devil, worship me. He says to Jesus, acknowledge that I am your superior and give me your service. Believe my, the devil's word, and depend on me for your rule. It's pretty bold and brazen, isn't it? But it's worked for the devil before. He held out to Israel prosperity in the land of promise if they would worship other gods, and they did. He held out to Adam the prospect of being like God, being God-like in the world if Adam would believe him. And Adam did. Now, Jesus doesn't quibble with the devil's capacity to fulfil his offer, nor does he challenge the devil's truthfulness. He is the son. And the son serves the father only and relies on him to give all that he has promised. And so he just dismisses the devil. Be gone, Satan. And again, he quotes Deuteronomy 6. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Where other sons failed, Jesus uniquely is the true son. The true son in perfect relationship with God, his father, the one who will be directed always by his word, his word alone, depending on it for life itself, the one who will trust the Father by leaving it to the Father to fulfil his promises in his way and in his time, the one who will serve only the Father, give him his exclusive loyalty and receive his exaltation to his rule, to the inheritance the Father has promised as the servant of the Father, not as a rival, or one who seeks rule independent of the Father. Jesus, in this testing, demonstrates he is the Son who loves the Father with all his heart, mind, soul and strength, the servant Israel who will do the Father's will. And this relationship with his Father is the foundation of all that will follow. And in being the true Son, Jesus is uniquely the one and only saving son who can complete the work the Father has entrusted to him. This is what we'll see in the rest of the Gospel. Jesus teaches, does his mighty works, dies always as the obedient son of the Father, conforming his life and ministry in every respect to the Father's words, which is why we can be sure that Jesus' words are the Father's words, God's words. Jesus' work, the Father's work, the picture of the rule of God. Jesus' salvation, the Father's, God's salvation. This love of and humble dependence on the Father is what we are reminded of at key points in the Gospel where these temptations in Matthew 4 are recalled. So, for example, Matthew 16, when Peter objects to Jesus doing the Father's will, Jesus having revealed to his disciples that he will save his people by his rejection, mocking, death and resurrection. When Peter objects, Jesus turns to Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. Literally, be gone. Be gone Behind me, Satan, the same word with which Jesus dismisses Satan in Matthew 4. You see, Jesus recognizes in Peter's words Satan's temptation to come to his kingdom in some way other than God's way. And again, at this key moment, he decisively rejects it. He will serve the Father only, not human expectation. Oh, when Jesus is being arrested, he knows he could call for legions of angels to protect him. But how, Matthew twenty-six fifty-four. how then, he says, should the scriptures be fulfilled? You see, Jesus will do God's work God's way. He will not put the Lord to the test by demanding that it, it should be done his way. And as Jesus hangs on the cross... He is mocked with the very words the devil used to address him. You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Even on the cross, as every cell of Jesus' body longs for life and relief from that pain, Jesus will not take action to save his own life He continues to reject the idea that being son of God is demonstrated in using his powers to save himself. He will trust the Father and he will save us by being the son who lives by the word of God, who will trust God to fulfil his promises his way and in his time and who serves him only. You see, the son Jesus is seen to be in the wilderness is the son he is throughout his ministry, the son he is on the cross. And being this son, the unique son who loved the father perfectly, who trusted the father and so fulfilled his word perfectly, he comes to his inheritance. The devil offered him the world. But the resurrected Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. You see, the Father is faithful. He keeps His promises. And the Lord Jesus comes to what the devil could never give rule not only of earth, but of earth and heaven. And in coming to this authority, He becomes uniquely the one and only Son with authority to forgive and to judge with authority to declare all who believe in him to be children of God, to include them in God's people through faith in him, to include us who believe in him, in the Israel who will inherit God's kingdom, the new heaven and the earth, who will know forgiveness and peace with God forever. So if you're not yet a believer, you should see here in Matthew 4 that there is no one else like Jesus the true son of God. He is victorious where all others have failed. And that includes you and I, you and I. We failed the test to be rightly related to the living God. We have failed to trust our creator and honour him as he deserves. deserves. Now, that might not trouble you. You mightn't be able to see why all this matters. You might actually have found Jesus' responses, his commitment to die to do God's will, frankly, quite puzzling. But that actually means that you are ensnared by the devil's lies, that you are so used to those lies that you are used to looking after yourself first, accustomed to living, having your decisions guided by your own desires, so ensnared that you have lost sight of the Creator God, lost sight of your dependence on him for life, lost sight of his rule of the universe, lost sight of his justice that will call you and I to account in judgment. Now, our world calls that insight, but it is actually blindness, deadly blindness. For this is God's world and the nations, you and I, will bow to God's true son and acknowledge his rule one day. So God calls us to listen to his son, to believe him, when he says he has all authority to trust him, that he will teach us the truth about God, not to trust him that he has authority to forgive us, to trust him when he says that life is found in following him. No one else can give this life, the life of God, All others that you might be tempted to put your trust in including yourself are already enslaved to the devil's lies. You know those lies that we can have rule by worshipping the creature not the creator. The lies that say we can make and shape God to serve us because we're the centre. The lies that tell us that we can keep using what we've been given independent of God to keep ourselves alive apart from God. In the end Whomever you turn to, if it is not the Son, the Lord Jesus, all you are left with are their lies and their death. There is no one else like Jesus who, committed to the Father's will, speaks God's word, exercises God's rule, brings God's life. So turn to him. He lives. Get to know him. Through his word, trust him. And if you don't know Jesus, well, sign up for Christianity Explored or or come and talk to one of us or a Christian you know. It is that important. Jesus is unique, the only son, the only one who can give God's life. But if you are a believer, well, you know that trusting Jesus, the true son, you have been adopted as God's child. That is the amazing promise of God's word. John 1, all who received him, who believed in his Jesus' name, he gave them the right to become children of God. Or the Apostle Paul, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we, those who trust Jesus, believe the gospel, might receive adoption as sons and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. As God's adopted children, we can actually learn from this passage not only to trust the true son, which is its first and primary point, that Jesus is the unique son equipped to bring the promise-saving reign of God, but we can also learn here a little of what it is to be a child of God. We can be equipped to live as God's children, through our own testing, by looking at Jesus here. You see, that testing will come. We are all in a spiritual battle. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So what can we learn here? Well, we can learn here that we will win or lose in that testing in our hearts. It's our minds and wills that are the battleground. See, think of Jesus' hunger. There was hunger, real hunger, which is more powerful at engaging our attentions than sexual desire. That was Primo Levi's testimony from the concentration camps. It's powerful hunger. But appetite alone, the need alone, does not determine our actions. There still had to be a decision made, a decision to be guided by God's word or not. You see, the battle against temptation is not won or lost by our circumstances, it is won and lost in our hearts, in our wills, whether they'll be directed by trust in and obedience to God's word or not. A couple of examples. Porn. Porn is not a habit before it is a decision. A decision that you make that you'll find life, relief, satisfaction by using what you have, that computer or phone, to satisfy your desire even though God forbids it. Angry words. Angry words are not just an emotion. They are a decision. It, It may be one you have made so many times that you don't notice you're making it, but it is a decision, a decision in your will that you will get what you want, what you think will give you life, improve your life, by expressing your anger towards others in hurtful and painful words, even though God forbids it. Grumbling. Grumbling against God is not the inevitable outcome of hard circumstances. It's a decision. It is a decision that you know better than God, how God should act. A decision to disbelieve his promises. The battle against temptation is waged and won or lost in our hearts, our wills. And we see here, secondly, that temptation testing will always focus on our relationship with our Father. For that is what is always at stake. You see, the devil didn't care less whether Jesus ate or not. He cared about whether Jesus would be guided by God's word or not. And think of the other temptations. Rescue by God belonged to Jesus. The question was whether he would humble himself and trust God to rescue him in the Father's own time and way. The rule of all the nations and all their glory belonged to Jesus, his birthright. The question was whether he would come to it in God's way, serving him or abandoning or abandon serving God to have the gift without the giver. The focus of our temptations is always on our relationship with God our Father. A couple of examples. Now, you might have been gifted by God with great sporting talent. What you long for, what you train for, is sporting achievement. You may be qualified for that, but the issue is not the achievement. It's whether you will come to that achievement trusting and obeying, worshipping the God who gave you this ability, or whether you'll choose to come to it some other way, believing the devil's lie, that he can give you your heart's desire if you abandon God and follow his lie. That will be the issue. And it will play out in whether you start to ignore what God commands to get to your goal. Ignoring his command, say, to prayer because you're getting up too early to train or you're ignoring his command to meet with his people because you don't have time or the game's on then or ignoring respecting your parents or even honesty like Floyd Landis, raised in a Mennonite home but stripped of his 2006 Tour de France win for his doping offences. question's always, who will you serve? You might be gifted by God with academic ability, but will you gain the prominence and promotion in the academic you, you, world you desire or are qualified for by going quiet on God, being creator of all by his word? Who will you serve? Or what you desire, feel entitled to, may be a happy and harmonious home. Do you think you can gain it by going quiet on what is involved in following Jesus, abandoning his standards, changing your patterns of life that have been shaped by God's word to avoid conflict with your children who are being guided by another God? The focus is always on our relationship with God, whether we'll trust and obey his word, serve him only, look to him to give us what he has promised in his time, or whether we'll believe the devil's lie, that we should be in control, tell God how he should serve us, or that he can give us, the devil's lie, that he can give us what we desire, whether it's relationship or fortune or accomplishment, without honouring the living God, without the inconvenience of serving him. And, you know, the sad thing is the devil is a liar. What the devil gives to you, he also promises to others. Being number one in your sport, say, will only last a moment. Number one in your field, until another comes along. There's no security in what the devil gives, only fear and emptiness, the lies that come with trying to prevent losing what you will always lose. For the devil can't give life and everything will be lost in death. The focus of our temptations is always on our relationship with God. Will we be true children who trust the Father and serve Him or not? And thirdly, temptation is overcome, resisted by holding fast to the Word of God, understood, trusted, and humbly received. The Word not as a magic text or mantra, the Word not corrupted by our own selfish desires, made to serve our own plans and ambitions, and not just the Word on a page, but the word stored in our hearts so we can bring it to bear on what we're thinking about, what we say are turning over in our minds in the wakeful small hours or the choices we are considering in the daylight. And if that word is to help, we don't just need to know it. We need to know that we trust the God who speaks it, that the God who commands it, say, I control my anger, or control my tongue, or that I be sexually pure, who tells me to meet with other believers, we need to know that the God who commands, wants my best, tells me the truth, and can be trusted. And that conviction is cultivated in only one way, by thinking about Jesus and what God has done for us in Christ. It's cultivated by confessing, the gospel realities, that we are sinners deserving condemnation but saved by God's free undeserved grace, the grace that gave the son to die for you and I, oh, and the power that raised him from the dead. Thinking about the gospel helps you answer the questions you should always ask and answer when tempted. Three questions you should always ask. Does my heavenly Father, who commands this, love me? Does my heavenly Father know and desire what is best for me? And do things, whatever happens, do things, always work out my heavenly Father's way? They are the three questions you should ask whenever you are tempted. And that same gospel on which you should meditate tells you that Jesus lives now as the one to whom you can always draw near for help, who because of his own testing will always be merciful and compassionate and able to help us under trial. That's what the author of Hebrews says, that because Jesus himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Or again in Hebrews 4, We We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The devil wants you to fall, wants to separate you from your heavenly Father. And the devil's both bold and cunning. But remember, we are not alone when we are tested. We have the Word. We have the Spirit who directs our hearts to the Father. And we have a Saviour who knows, really knows what it is like to be tempted, who has felt the pressure, who's felt the pressure of an unsatisfied appetite, a feeling that, you know, we will die if we don't act to say, satisfy that hunger, whether for love or recognition or success. Who's felt the pressure of wanting to be in control, to have God's promises fulfilled when we want, in the way we want, so the pain will stop now. Who's felt the pressure of a longed-for goal and of being able to possess without having to do what seems the hard way, go the hard way, without having to go God's way. Jesus felt that pressure more intensely than us. He knows what we need at those times of testing and he is merciful. He can give us the help we need to keep living as God's children, to keep living as God's children to the end so that we come to what our Father has promised us, believers in Jesus, resurrection to the new heaven and earth. This is my son, whom I love. So praise God for sending his true son into the world to give us eternal life, to do battle with our enemies to rescue us, and praise the Son because he has overcome where all else in our bodies have failed. Praise the Father, praise the Son, and turn to the Son for grace to live now as God's adopted children, living by the word of God, living trusting his goodness, might and faithfulness, living, serving him, the life-giving God who always keeps his word, worshipping him, our Father through faith in Christ, worshipping him alone. Let's pray and then Joanne will come and continue praying for us. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our Lord Jesus. Uh, We thank you that he is one who knows what it is like to be tempted, to be tested in our trust in and obedience to you. We thank you that he is the one to whom we can draw near. He lives and we will always find mercy and grace to help with him. But we thank you above all that he was true and faithful in his own testing. We thank you that he is the son who gave himself wholly to do your will, to save your people by his own death and rising. We praise you for such a saviour, true and faithful, the one who has loved you with all his heart, mind, soul and strength and done your will and saved us. Amen.